speak to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, I want to give thanks for Norma. Now, Norma was well into her late 80s, and she attended a weekly Bible study, which I led. We were working our way through the Gospels, which meant we occasionally ran across a tough passage, one where we weren't exactly sure what Jesus was up to. You know, I love those bracelets we got out in the 1980s that said, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It's an excellent question. But I also know that sometimes he does not do what I wish or expect. And that's where Norma would come in. We'd come to a passage we didn't quite understand or even like, and folks would get all worked up about it, and Norma would say, I really don't understand this passage either, but that's okay. I know that somewhere in the Middle East, there's some undiscovered cave in which there is a clay jar that has a scroll in it that's going to clear all this up. We just have not found it yet. I loved her non-anxious response to things beyond our understanding. She taught me about trusting in the spirit of the hymn that says, we may not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not necessarily proud of it, but I often wish Jesus had a communications director or press secretary or spin doctor or someone to say, don't say that. Peter tried to play that role, and Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. I often wish that whoever put the New Testament together had taken some editorial license to get rid of passages that hurt our head or derail our neat theological trains of thought, but that didn't happen either. So this week and last week and next week and probably beyond that, we're going to hear strong and often hyperbolic statements out of the mouth of Jesus, and they can be hard to take, and they can be hard to take in. And such is the case for me with Jesus' pronouncements about divorce. I'm a child of divorce who came to see my parents' divorce as the better of a few very bad options. When they explained to me that they were getting divorced, they began by saying, it's complicated. I serve in a culture where, by some accounts, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I would have preferred if Jesus didn't offer what reads to us as a pretty sweeping pronouncement on the subject. At least I would have preferred not to have to preach on the text. <laughs> especially especially on, one, on a day after one of the best, most joyous weddings ever. Divorce is always complicated, never free of pain. We can soften this a bit by saying Jesus wanted to minimize the capricious nature of divorce in his patriarchal culture where a man could divorce a wife simply because she was displeasing, simply because she maybe made a bad meal. I've read that this is a defense of women who might be left with no one on their side, left with no resources. Maybe that softens it a bit. Maybe it softens it to say that other voices in Scripture provide a different picture of what happens when a marriage is to be dissolved, that our Scripture and tradition don't speak with one voice on the topic. Maybe that helps. But here is what I hear the Spirit saying to us this morning as as we await the discovery of Norma's clay jar. And it comes in the form of questions. 
What is it that makes Jesus mad? What triggers his indignation? We have two examples of that kind of reaction in today's gospel, but there are others in the gospels. Maybe the most famous is the time Jesus went in the temple and turned over to all the tables, um, getting rid of those who had turned the temple into what he called a den of thieves. Indignation at the use of religion to make money. Have you ever heard of such a thing? We read in the story of the resurrection of Lazarus that Jesus came to to that place of death to his tomb. It's one of the few places we hear that Jesus wept. John's gospel tells us he was greatly disturbed in spirit and it has the suggestion that he was actually angered by the power of death and by the grief that came to people he loved. Have you ever shared that indignation? We read in today's story that Jesus is put to the test by those who want to trick him, getting him to weigh in on whether divorce is permissible to get Jesus to commit to a no-win stance, guaranteed to anger somebody. Jesus says that the law was put in place because of the hardness of the human heart, the absence of compassion. Throughout the Gospels, that hardness of heart that coldness of spirit, that personality shut down, that lack of compassion seems to trigger Jesus's indignation. Have you ever witnessed that kind of hardness of heart? Later in the passage before us this morning, we read that Jesus was indignant because disciples were blocking access of children. Now, I suspect the children were noisy or messy or unruly, but Jesus brings the children front and center anyway, angry that they've been dismissed, angry that his followers, his best friends, had marginalized people who had already, thank you very much, been quite marginalized, angry that his disciples didn't recognize that those children knew more about the kingdom of heaven than they did. I wonder if you've ever been made angry, indignant, when you've seen that kind of marginalization. I wonder if we ever have participated in it. Back to Norma. Lots of questions in this passage, lots for scholars to debate. Here's one more question that occurs to me along the lines of what would Jesus do? What would make Jesus indignant if he were here today as he walked Manhattan streets, as he walked Galilean roads? What would make him indignant about our world in which, according to Oxfam, there are eight individuals who have as much wealth as half of the globe's population? What would make him indignant about modern Christianity and the institutional church? Do you think it turned out the way he anticipated? Would he turn over the tables? Would he throw up his hands in despair? Where would he even begin? What would make him indignant about the Episcopal Church and more specifically about St. James? Anything? I think we do a really powerful job of trying to follow his ways. But are there ways in which we, in which people who are marginalized are not made to feel welcome? And why in our churches 
is Sunday morning still the most segregated hour in our culture, 60 years after Martin Luther King made that observation? And here's the zinger. What would make him indignant about my life? You can ask the same about your own life. I've got enough to tackle in my own, thanks. <laughs> what, what would he think of my priorities, my values, if he look, had a look at my social media or at my calendar or my credit card statement? What would he think about my indifference to the suffering I pass by every day? What would he think of the ways I judge people who happen to disagree with me. What would he make of the hardness of my heart that holds on to resentments like trophies? It's both interesting and chilling to me that the objects of Jesus' indignation are not the usual suspects, not flagrant sinners or criminals or prostitutes or lepers or beggars. Even sleazy tax collectors get a welcome from Jesus. He parties with them. It seems again and again that his deepest, most fervent indignation is directed toward religious leaders of his day and even toward his disciple, disciples. And that's a caution because religious people, good churchgoers, maybe even clergy, can fall into a way of thinking that says explicitly or implicitly, dear Lord, you have no idea how lucky you are to have me on the team. But if we're able to embrace the notion that we are all works in progress, if we recognize that we might indeed do and say and think things that would trigger Jesus's indignation, some of which we're aware of, some of which we're totally clueless about, we can begin to see that we're all in this together. We can see that what ultimately matters is that we are on the receiving end of the wideness of God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. As the hymn text says, such grace is broader than the measure of our minds. Because here's the good news. The indignation of Jesus is not his only word, and it is by no means his last word. It is rigorous in its intention to widen our hearts, open our hearts, warm our hearts, to shape us into the persons God created us to be, to shape this church into the community God desires for us to experience, to shape our world into a place where all find compassion and respect and dignity and where we walk together in the way of love. So we ask, how are you and how am I how are we being formed in that way? How is our church being shaped in that way? May God give us grace to walk in that way with wide and open and warm hearts, trusting in the one who holds the future even and especially when it defies our understanding. Amen.